Are you glad to be here today? Now, I realize that there's a lot going on in our world today, and we're going to be looking at a, an interesting passage of Scripture from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. My name is John Irwin. I'm the associate pastor here. So those of you who are visiting, the dude that preaches most of the time was the guy doing announcements, and I usually do what he did this morning. But uh, this is a good week for us to do a little switch and I'd like to do something, because we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that I want us to see the same Scripture, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to actually read the passage together in honor of God's Word. Would you stand with me, look at the screen, and uh, let's read it together out loud. I want to hear you, all right? It says this, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. You may be seated. Now you think, wow, John, that's kind of a cranky text to have to deal with this morning. You get to preach, and you get to say, do not love the world. Now, I got to tell you something. This whole idea of the world and what does this actually mean is really coming into focus for me as I think about how much things have changed. I want to find out in this auditorium, do we have any college freshmen? You are a college freshman this year. I have one. I know uh, Jake and Noah are in the worship band. They're college freshmen. We have one college freshman. And I want you to think about what it's like for them to be in college this year. The Beloit College mindset list was developed 15 years ago, and every year these two professors want to remind the rest of the professors at their respective universities, this is who your crowd is that you're teaching. Remember, this is their mindset. And it might help us frame the discussion of this whole thing of the world this morning. Those first-year college freshmen were born in 1996, generally speaking. They have been alive, and uh, these four people have never been alive in their lifetime. Tupac has been long dead. John Benet Ramsey, they don't know who that is. Carl Sagan, huh? And uh, Tiny Tim, all dead. They never knew them. Uh, on Parents' Weekend this year, Madonna and uh, Rocky, Sylvester Sloan, brought their kids to school, for the, to college for the first time. And so they will be, if they matriculate, how's that word, SAT test, uh, in four years, this is the cla graduating class of 2018. I'll give you just a few. They have a hundred or so distinctions, and I'll just read a few of them to you. During their initial weeks of kindergarten, they were upset by endless repeated images of planes blasting into the World Trade Center. When they see wire rim glasses, they think Harry Potter, not John Lennon. The celebrity selfie is far cooler than just getting somebody's autograph. And I got to tell you, you talk about celebrities. Anybody watch the fight last night? Just curious. I don't ever really watch fights, but I got invited, and so I knew that God needed me to have an illustration for this morning. But tell me how in the world we see the entourages coming in, and someone goes, there's Justin Bieber there. I go, oh, my goodness, how'd he work? And then I see Jimmy Kimmel, and I'm going... Wow, I guess uh, with enough money, you can be in anybody's, you know, little group there. Um, the water cooler for freshmen in college is no longer a place where people talk and gossip. 
they actually use it to fill the water bottles that they bring to work, all right? Um, in their lifetime, a dozen different actors have played Nelson Mandela on the big screen. In their lifetime, Fox and MSNBC have always been duking it out for the hearts and minds of American viewers. Remember Joe Camel? They don't because he was never inducing them to smoking. How about parents and TV controls? There has always been a rating system since they've been alive. The Unabomber has always been behind bars. There's always been women, female referees in the NBA. Major League Baseball always plays a couple games in Mexico. Bill Gates has always been the richest man in the United States. When they went to hang out with people, they don't go to their local park. They get on Skype or Instagram or Twitter or what's not. Uh, they have no memory of George Stephanopoulos. They don't even know how to pronounce it, say it, or know who he was. They have probably never used, wait for it, Netscape as their, their browser. Now, some of you are going, I still use Netscape. Um, they, um, Boeing has never had any American competition for, com for commercial aircraft. U.S. soldiers have always been kind of vaccinated against anthrax. Good feedback means getting 30 likes on your Facebook page in that afternoon. And their collection of U.S. quarters have always had the celebrate the individual states. So I thought, okay, the world has changed dramatically. And when we, as we grow older, uh, we forget how different this environment is. And we want to understand this scripture in the context of the world that we live in. So then I was thinking, well, how are things changed since I was a freshman in college? That was... 40 years ago, I was a freshman at Biola University. Here's how things have changed since 1975. Went from having long hair for longing for hair. From acid rock to acid reflux. Uh, from moving to California because it's cool to moving to California because it's warm. All right? Now, not endorsing this, anybody in the audience here, but uh, back in 75, it was all about killer weed. Now it's about weed killer at my house. Uh, by the way, I didn't partake, didn't smoke, didn't, uh, just to clarify that. Uh, back then, going to a hip new joint, that was cool. Uh, now it's about receiving a new hip joint. Um, from like rolling stones to kidney stones, uh, from being called into the principal's office to calling the principal's office, from disco, staying alive, to Costco, and from passing the driver's test to passing the vision test. So when we see this context of love not the world, what in the world are we actually talking about in our culture today? Let's look at your notes, and if you notice, they are rather lengthy, I get that, it's a four-pager today, but be of good cheer. We will be down by early afternoon. And so, look at the command from Scripture. It says in verse 15, love not the world. That word world is used six times in three verses, 17 times in the first three chapters of 1 John. And in fact, we know John loves talking about the world. He has used it, uh, he uses it 79 times in his own gospel, 23 times in 1 John. He uses it then more than all the New Testament writers combined. You say, what's his big deal with the world? That, that word, Greek word is cosmos. It's where we get our word cosmetic. Uh, it's this idea, not what it isn't, isn't the, the, the beauteous of his creation. He doesn't, don't, doesn't say you can't love what you see here. That's beautiful. That's okay. He's not 
talking about the actual physical dirt that we, we stand on. What he's saying is don't love that worldview that's in opposition to all that is holy, right, and justice and, and just. It's the focus on the culture of the worldview, the world system that is often antagonistic and in contradiction to all that God stands for in His Word. Now, I need to say this just real quickly, that the Scriptures speak to this in lots of passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, and I think it's on the screen, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 1 John 5, 19, just write the reference down. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So what it literally means, the present uh, imperative means literally stop loving that. Stop being co-opted. Stop being sucked in into the vortex of a worldview that doesn't actually line up with God's Word. Now, I got to tell you, some of you in this audience, you're, you're, you're still in process. You're trying to figure out, where does God fit in my life? And I, I want to implore you this morning that when we're talking about this passage, we want you to know that this is a safe place for anybody who's exploring faith to figure out where God fits in your life. We don't want to claim that we have it all together and just we're the shell answer man and just fill in the blanks and all will be good. We realize that for all of us, there is a pull, a magnetic pull that draws us away from God, even if we are Christ followers. And so, uh, why is this a problem? Why does he say, stop loving the world? Why does he say that? Well, let's look at that. There's a problem. First of all, we see at the end of verse 15 that the love of the Father is not in. It is incompatible with God Himself. The love of the Father is not in Him. It's like oil and water. They can't coexist. They are mutually exclusive. It is the Lakers versus the Celtics. It is like surfers and great white sharks, all right? They are mutually exclusive. Um, it's maybe even the Giants versus the Dodgers, and you can come up with your own contrasts. They are not compatible. James 4.4, 4. look at the Scriptures with me on the screen. You adulteresses, you do not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Ouch! Now, that that's feels a little cranky, does it not? It just feels a little... Do I really got to say it quite that way? Well, let's look at the second reason why it's a problem. Because of the pursuit. It is inconsistent with who we are. In a moment, we'll look at a chart that kind of outlines these three ways that this is inconsistent with who we are in verse 16, so we'll come back to that. But ultimately, the world philosophy that we live in today is about values and choices and assumptions and beliefs. And we have to decide, do our belief system come from the Word of God, which is the basis for how we make decisions, or is it based on the popular ideas of the culture of our day? And it's not always easy to discern, where did that idea come from? Because we find ourselves buying into things we never thought we would buy into. Think about this. This loving world isn't like an earthquake of theology that like, boom, all this thing happened all of a sudden. Think about this text in light of erosion. Think about a house in Malibu that once had 40 feet of backyard and now it has 10 
because the waves of the ocean beat up against the cliffs and, and it's eroding away and pretty soon you are now sitting on the edge of a precipice. It's called the frog in the kettles a syndrome if you know that book by George Barna. And so we understand that the, the, the worldview of, of what we're surrounded by isn't always the same as what God's view is, right? So, what do we worship in our culture at times? I thought of all the things that begin with C, the things that we worship. Now, by the way, they're not bad things, but they're things that, you know, kind of get elevated more importantly than they probably should. What were some things that we worship? The audience participation here, huh? Cash. Yeah, we, were, we, like, we like cash. Like in my pocket more than in yours, okay? What else? Cash. Cars. Oh, yeah, cars. People like cars. People like really nice cars, red, shiny cars, silver cars, convertibles, you know. Convertible cars are even better. How about computers and a certain kind of computer, you know, solid-state computers, not just any old disk drive for my computer. How about cool clothes, all right? Now, you say, really? That is so shallow. Well, just take a look at your clothes today, you know. What are you wearing? Is it well, I won't get into that. Um, I think we worship the Caribbean. Ah, it's stretching it because I'm going on a cruise. Oh, cruises. Well, maybe we like that. So, if we're not careful, we get caught up in the more is better thing, and it's like a treadmill. By the way, I've been working out on a treadmill. I, I like doing it. I do kind of this where I kind of sprint. Well, by the way, sprinting for me is like 4.7 for you. I don't get into the sixes. Walking for me is like 2.9. Anyway, so, but there's a thing called when you like, and I kept hitting this button and, and I kept going faster and I was thought I was hitting the stop button and I'm like going like this. I would have made a unbelievable YouTube video recently. I'll just leave it at that. It ended not well. But that's what it's like when you get on this treadmill of comparison and I got to have more and I want to I look a certain way and be a certain kind of person. And so the gap gets farther and farther. On a serious note, Think about what's happened in our culture when it uh, comes to cohabitation, for instance. It's just kind of normative for couples to live together now. Or maybe, hey, divorce is just a way out uh, with a tough marriage. Let's just end this thing. Or open relationships, sex in inside and outside of, of the marital bond. Now, I, I don't want to be cranky and judgmental. That's not my purpose. I'm just trying to make a point that biblically, it seems like we've just drifted just drifted away. One of the things I think is we tend to worship celebrities today in our culture instead of honoring heroes. And, and, the, and the list of contrasts, you can kind of come up with your own. But finally, honesty and, and fidelity and integrity is always seem to be in opposition to, to expediency and relativism. So the third reason it's a problem, because he says in verse 17 that it's passing. It is temporary and transient. The world is passing away. It has a product expiration date. Like, hey, this is not all going to be here eventually. We know that in Revelation, how it ends. There's a recommended use date. And just like that milk that sours in your refrigerator, the world is souring because it gets farther and farther from biblical ideals. And that's why it says in Matthew that we're supposed to be salt and light. We had to redeem the culture, not just ridicule the culture. 
The world doesn't have staying power, and we've seen it. It's like a pair of old fading jeans. It just, they don't get darker. They get, they get lighter over time. God is eternal. God is eternal. And, and we see throughout Scripture people who kind of started strong with Christ, but then they kind of fell away. We know that in, in, in Mark 4, in the parable of the four soils, there was one of the, the seeds that got dropped and it grew, but then, you know, the weeds kind of choked it out. And sometimes there's stuff in our culture that chokes out our all-out, 100% pursuit of God. And we can't let that be. We see an example with Demas. Remember, we were in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, that Demas was walking with Paul and with the Lord, and then it says this last commentary on his life, having loved this present world. So, it's not the beauty of creation that God's saying don't get into. What He's saying is the world system that is as contrary and hostile to what my Word says is true, honorable, and right, that's what I say. Don't buy in it. Don't be co-opted. They're mutually exclusive. But the end of the good news of, of, this, of this passage is, but the one who does the will of a God abides forever. It reminds me of what I was told by my youth pastor back in the day when I was playing baseball in high school, and I was, that was a big deal to me. And I, I know some of you know this story, but it bears repeating because oftentimes I was caught between the struggle of, you know, playing in a baseball game and being at church, and there was conflict with games and schedules. And that was before that they, when they weren't scheduling games, quote, on Sundays because it was God's day. You parents today, I, I, I know it's a struggle because it seems like every league on the planet schedule games on Sunday morning, and if you're on a travel team, forget it. You know, it's like you don't even have a life. We'll see you next year when they're like 18. You know, we'll see you in 14 years. So, I remember that he, he told me, because I was wrestling with this baseball thing, and we had this, this choir tour. Believe it or not, man, Agape wasn't the first thing on the block. It was Bethany Youth Choir in West Covina back in the 70s, and we had this huge youth choir. We're going to Yosemite to perform, and, and, but we had this baseball team that I was on, and we kept winning. There was no possible way we're supposed to, like, our all-star team was going to make it to the World Series, and it's getting to be August, and this tour is in August, and I'm, like, having a panic attack because I'm playing on this team, and I want to go on this tour, and I'm a Christian, but I've made a commitment to this baseball team, and what am I going to do? And my youth pastor just said it very simply. He said, there's two things that are going to last for eternity. The Word of God and people. Now, pray about your choices. Oh, no guilt there, you know, but um, I, our youth pastors are much more tactful than that, you know. They're like, and so I prayed, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, the Lord took care of it. We lost 3-2 in the bottom of seventh, and we didn't go to the World Series, and I went on choir tour. Yay, God! I felt guilty for years, though, that probably my prayers ended our team's success. <laughs> Not exactly sure. So, you look at the text, right? It says, love not the world. But some of you are thinking with me out loud. You're saying, hey, 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 what about John 3.16, right? What does John 3.16 says? It says, for God so what? Love the world. Okay, problem. God so loved the world. 1 John 2.15, love not the world. What are we talking about? How do we integrate those two ideas? Well, first of all, it's God who is supposed to love the world, and we're just kind of His, His helpers in that. So, this is primarily God's deal, loving the world, and He uses us to do that. But I think we essentially have three approaches, right? How you figure that out, how you, you love the world. How many ever heard this phrase growing up? Don't, you can be in the world, but not of the world. How about in versus of, all right? 
And someone came up with that, and, and okay, so how do we integrate those things? Well, I think you really only have three alternatives, right? I, and this is as simple as I can make it. Here, in relationship to the world, and the other phrase in verses of, you also heard this phrase, hate the sin, but love the sinner. That, that even feels kind of ouch to me. So, we'll, we'll just call instead of sinner, we'll just do person, all right? So, here's the first one, the isolation approach, all right? You hate the sin, and you hate the person as well. And you go, ooh, that's not a good way to love the world. In fact, we kind of hoist in our little holy huddles, and we kind of rant about the world and how it's falling apart and how ungodly everything else in the world is, and that is not really very loving or kind, is it? That is not what we want to do. I think about how we come in contact with, how do they see us as Christians? One of the guys on our staff who really has ability to connect with people who are far from God is our pastor who gets in great conversations with people, and our worship uh, guy, Chad, and if you ever follow him on Facebook, he gets these little you know, things going, and then like, they're like, 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 get your game face on, it'll take me an hour to read these posts. We got into this discussion about how easy it is for us to rant and rave about what's going on in culture, and it really gives a message to people who are in process going like, they must not like us, and it becomes a we-they thing. Hear me, hear me, friends. Wherever you find yourself in your spiritual journey, we believe this is a safe place to do it. And you don't have to have all the, your questions answered. You don't have to have all the boxes checked. You don't have to be the perfect little Christian. What you have to be is open. And we need to be open to how we talk about things where there's legitimate conflicts and differences of opinion. So, you have the isolation approach. I, um, it, my church that I grew up in wasn't quite like that, but it was kind of the stereotypical Baptist church, and sometimes I think we elevated certain behaviors as these must be horrible things, and, and you know, you're a good Christian if you do these things, and, and I think some people kind of got turned off, to be honest with you. So, that's the isolation approach. Uh, the immersion approach is we can love the sin, and we're going to love the person, and we're going to jump in the deep end of the pool of their sin with them, and we're going to participate, So, because we're not going to be accused of being odd for God, like you know what I'm talking about, right? Um, and so, we, we partake in everything. We pass it off as a way of, hey, we're just connecting with them so that we're real. Really? Because then they look at you when there's a real issue in life and go, okay, I want to tell you about God. And they're going, really? Dude, you are no different than the rest of us. You party as hard as anybody. You're, you're, you're kind of two-faced. Like, you say you're a Christian, but you're like, whoa, uh, not so sure about that immersion approach. And the problem is we kind of become indistinguishable with the people that God's calling us to love and to reach. And so when real conversations have to occur, you've lost your platform. You've lost your opportunity to be a winsome witness, haven't we? Third is the infiltration approach. And that's where, hey, we hate the sin. We're not going to compromise on those values that God's not going to compromise on. But we're going to love the person. We're going to get involved in people's lives. We're going to meet people's needs. We're going to be attentive not accusatory in our conversations. Just think about that. 
listening to what they're saying, not coming up with your answer of your defense about why they're wrong. That is just, just at its core, not good. How about not being dismayed by what we see around us, but not always having this look of disgust on our lips and our faces? How about being in anguish over things, but not arguing everything with people? How about caring more and condemning less? And believe me, I say all these things, but it's a fine line, isn't it? It's a tightrope, and it's not always clear. When do I speak up? When do I just shut up? When do I just listen? When do I say, God, change my heart versus just changing their heart? How about being caring but not being co-opted? How about promoting intelligent dialogue in the marketplace of ideas when there's a plurality of, of philosophies that are competing for a biblical worldview and recognizing that, that this is fair game for people to ask those kinds of questions? How about we want to know where they're coming from, not just to get where we want to go in our argument? Where are they coming from? And maybe we stop trying to coerce and convince them, but just nudge and nurture them. Love them. Love people who at some times are just unlovable. Now, lest you think that I got this perfectly together, I mess it up, and it's so frustrating. I should be farther along this loving path and not being so tightly wound and in the box and got to have a chart and fill in the boxes and the blanks. I I get that. I I mess it up sometimes. I tell you, you know know this, and it's an ongoing thing. I keep telling you these stories because I want you to know that I wrestle with it too. Every week, I play racquetball with an atheist an agnostic, and a Mormon. We're all in a bar together. No, um, it's a bad joke. And, and, and sometimes when I lose my patience, because for the fourth time, my friend Emery hits me in the square of my back when all he had to do is say hinder or not take the shot or say get out of my way or duck for cover, and it hurts, and I want to just strangle him. I'm not very loving, and I know it. I confess, I had to apologize about a month ago because I yelled at him. I, and, and by the way, when we yell at someone, we always want to justify it in our mind. Well, he did. I don't care what he did. It's what I did, and it was wrong. And so, isolation approach doesn't work. The immersion approach doesn't work. I think the infiltration uh, works, and that's where our lives intersect with their lives. So how do we do this? Go back to verse 16. It says, there are three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is the thing, the worldview that's wrapped around those three things is what oftentimes puts Christianity in conflict with people who are searching for God. And it causes angst and heartburn for us as well. The interesting thing is, I'm going to show you in this chart that Satan is a three-trick pony. This, this deal of lust of flesh, lust of life, and pride of life, we can take this analogy all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and I'll show you that in just a moment, all right? So here we go. Let's just define our terms. The definition 
of lust of the flesh is selfishness. At its core, it's selfishness, and if you want to write in parentheses, sensuality. Look at Galatians 5, the fruit of the flesh, that describes lust of the flesh, all right? It's our fallen nature apart from God, all right? Lust of the eyes, I believe, is envy. An old King James term is covetousness. Say that three times fast, covetousness, all right? It's wanting something you can't or should not have. It's envy. Now, I got to tell you, that's not generally my deal. I, I, I'm honest to God. I, I don't want a bigger house. I want a nicer car. I, but I have to tell you, last night, I had a, a real moment of envy. I'm watching the fight, and I'm watching their version of the red carpet, and him strolls Tom Brady. Now, I'm not envious of Tom Brady because he's a four-time Super Bowl champion. I'm not envious because he's married to a supermodel. I'm envious for the fact that he started his day at the Kentucky Derby, and that's across the country, and he ended up in Las Vegas watching the fight that night. What it must be to have to struggle with choices like that for him. <laughs> horrible, horrible. And so, you got to figure your own thing, but we all probably have something or someone that we envy from time to time. And then the third one is the pride of life, and that's just arrogance or pride, all right? Arrogance or pride. Uh, uh, we know that the ultimate example of arrogance and pride is Satan, right? And if you want to check out his deal on that is uh, the five I wills of Satan in Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14. Now, what's the key word? Here, I'll make it simple for you, all right? Lust of the flesh is I will, all right? Lust of the flesh or lust of the eyes is I want. The pride of life is I am. I will, I want, I am. I was thinking about wanting things, and I was thinking about how simple life is uh, uh, for a two-and-a-half-year-old, because they know one version of this. They kind of fall in that I want category. Maybe you've heard this, but uh, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, and this does describe his life. It's called the tro uh, toddler property loss. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never in any way appear to be yours. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you're playing with something and put it down, it automatically becomes mine. If it's broken, it's yours. All right? That's that kind of I want syndrome. It starts at two and a half. What's the motivation? Well, I think the motivation for the lust of the flesh is very simply, it's a desire for pleasure. Hedonism has been with us forever. And that desire, this lust of the flesh, it could be pleasure, can take all kinds of forms. It can take on a sexual form. Uh, by the way, this isn't primarily about sex or lust, by the way, this, this context. It's broader than that. 2 Timothy 3, 4 says, describing our age, it's, it's an age of pleasure. Uh, the motivation for lust of the eyes is a drive for possessions. Nothing wrong having stuff. But it's this drive for possessions, prestige, or maybe power position. And pride of life, a deceit to gain position. I was thinking, well, do I wrestle with any of that? Well, back to that lust of the eyes. It's maybe possessions. I, I didn't think I really have, you know, excesses and possessions. And then something struck me <laughs> early this morning. I'm looking at my notes and I'm thinking, I wonder how many T-shirts and golf shirts I have. 
the drive for more. There's never enough good golf shirts and T-shirts. And I actually, I kid you not, I actually called my wife early this morning. I said, would you do me a favor? Go to our closet and just count the number. And, okay, this is a little anal retentive. I'm just going to reveal here. My shirts are actually color-coordinated from black to white, all right, and in color spectrum. And I need some help because I'm not sure where greens fit with blues and yellows. But anyway, anyway, so it was very easy. I'd just done that. And I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I have 40 or 50. She said I have 92 T-shirts. Amelda Marcos has nothing on me when it comes to T-shirts. She may have more shoes. She does not have more T-shirts. By the way, Amelda Marcos was, anyway, well, it's another story. <laughs> Go back to the mindsight list. You can ask about her. Then I thought, well, surely I probably only have like 25 golf shirts, you know, the little collared ones, the little Nike dry fit ones and golf terms have been. 54 golf shirts. I could wear one golf shirt a week and never get through my deal. That's, that's just way too many, all right? So what am I going to do about it? I'm going to keep them. I'm going to hoard them, all right? <laughs> all right, what's the motivation? <laughs> what's the motivation? All right, desire for pleasure, desire for possession is deceit to gain position is the third one. A deceit to gain position, all right? What does it lead to? I think ultimately our flesh leads to overindulgence, whether it's in food or anything else, overindulgence. Our lust of the eyes leads to false values and materialism, all right? And then the pride of life ultimately, I think, leads to status building, taking credit for stuff that we shouldn't be taking credit for. Well, what does it result in? Well, I think it results, first of all, less of flesh in destruction. And I think about what's going on in the world, how many things end up in cities and places end up in conflict. Our hearts are breaking over the last week of what's been going on in the city of Baltimore. And whatever side of the fence you are in that discussion, we know that people and lives are getting destroyed there. It's not good. The lust of the eyes, that envious drive for possessions and materialism ultimately results in disillusionment because enough is never enough. Isn't that what Nelson Rockefeller said? How much money do you need? Uh, just a little more than I have. And then ultimately, the pride of life, that arrogance, that status building, that, that taking credit for stuff you don't deserve ultimately ends in deceit or hypocrisy. Now, I said it was a three-trick pony, right? We can go all the way back to Genesis and you're going to say these same things, less of flesh, less of eyes, pride of life. One verse, Genesis 3, 6, what does it say? Look at your notes. The fruit of the tree was good for food. That's lust of the flesh. And it was pleasing to the eye. That's the, the lust of the eyes. And desirable for gaining wisdom. That's the pride of life. In fact, uh, Satan tempted the, Adam and Eve by saying, you'll become like God. Just eat this fruit. It's all good. How about Jesus' temptation in Matthew chapter 4? What well, happens? The lust of the flesh. Command these stones to become bread. He was hungry. It's been 40 days. How about the next one, well, it kind of goes out of order. The, the third temptation is, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he said, I'll give this to you. That's the lust of the eyes. Look at all this. I'll give it to you. He had no authority to give it to him. Jesus already owned it. And then throw yourself down, verse 6. Throw yourself down. That's the pride of life. Assert your authority. You see, Satan uses the same temptations, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. He's been doing it since the garden. He did it with Jesus. He'll do it with you. 
By the way, Proverbs 16, 18 tells us about pride, right? Pride goeth before a fall. So what's the attitude? Very simply, lust the flesh, me first. Lust the eyes, oh, poor me. Pride of life, hey, look at me, right? Me first, poor me, look at me. Solution, I would suggest that for the lust of the flesh, it's serving others, right? Serving others. Don't serve yourself. Serve others. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Look at the Scripture on the screen. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another more important than yourselves. Don't look after your own personal interest. Look at other people's interests. Secondly, lust of the flesh or lust of the eyes. I think it's seeking right priorities. What's really important? All this stuff? What's really important? Matthew 6.33 tells us what's really important. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. By the way, that's a lot easier said than done because we look at the haves and the have-nots, and we think we're in the have-not category when we have, we're a blessed people more than our wildest dreams. And then a proper self-evaluation is, is the solution ultimately to arrogance and pride. Where does God really fit? Look at Philippians 4, 13 and Romans 12, 3. Look at those verses. Christ is the one who strengthens you. It's not you. It's not what you do. It's not earning favor with God. It's not muscling up and being more religious. And Romans 12, 3 says, every one of you shouldn't think more highly of himself than he ought to, right? Have a proper self-evaluation. Now, that's the text. So, I told you I was going to tell you how it relates to this world, but I think very simply as we kind of land the plane today, how are the popular world philosophies today play out in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? I'm going to give you six of them, and they're just in your notes, so we're not going to spend a lot of time. You can read the Scriptures for yourself, but as you look at those, realize the first two fall in the category of lust of the flesh. The next two fall in the category of the lust of the eyes, and the last two fall in the the category of the pride or boastful pride of life. All right? And uh, all uh, uh, props to Rick Warren, who I I read this article uh, a few years ago, and I thought got me thinking about this. So, one world philosophy is I got to think of me first, kind of take care of me. That's what's most important. The Holy Trinity, me, myself, and I. And Matthew 16, 25 says, if you try to keep your life for yourself, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you'll, you'll find it. So, serving others is always going to compete with serving yourself, lust of the flesh. How about do what feels good? Proverbs 21, 17, you are addicted to thrills. What an empty life. How about the one with the most toys wins? How many toys do you have to have and all that good stuff to acquire more stuff? By the way, when you think you deserve more, usually you're not grateful for what you already have. That's lust of the eyes. How about the fourth philosophy? Whatever works for you. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end results in death. Whatever works for you. And by the way, one of the things that kind of works for us today in church world is we kind of fool ourselves saying, hey, I kind of go to church when it's convenient. When it fits my schedule, I'll show up. And we kind of subtly bought into the deal that I don't really need you. I want to hear a good sermon and worship God a little bit, but I just, I need it when I need it, and if it conflicts, I'm doing other stuff. Now, I'm not here to guilt trip you about that. In fact, this is a packed house this morning. This is awesome. But oftentimes, what works for us doesn't really always work for God. And so, our value system can't be determined by pragmatic, emotional decision-making. 
think about our choices before we get in the choice that we got to make. And this idea, whatever works for you, implied in that statement, it's kind of this kind of, well, that's fine for you if you need Jesus as a crutch, but don't try to change me, whatever works for you. Then God doesn't exist. That's the ultimate description of pride and arrogance. Hey, God doesn't exist. And you can check out Romans 1.25. You just deny that there is no creator God, then you can kind of live life however you choose. And then you are your own God. Look at Romans 1.25. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. So ultimately, the ultimate pride of life is, hey, I'm going to determine our, our destiny. I'm in, I'm in charge of, of life. So those six worldviews are subtly embedded into the culture which we live in, and we wake up one day and we go, how did I get there from here? One of my greatest, I don't want to say it's a regret, but one of my, the, the, it's not even a wound, it's not a regret, it's looking back at, I've been in ministry 36 years. First 10, I was a youth pastor in Huntington Beach. For those of you who are in high school, awesome first ministry. Like, I got to suffer for Jesus in Huntington Beach. Wow. You know, I grew up in the smog capital world, West Covina. No smog in Huntington Beach, right? It was one of those halcyon days, 1978, where I could see any number one of my guys. I didn't have to make campus appointments because they ditched school all the time, and they were surfing. And I'd see them. I'd go to the pier. I'd go, hey, let's hang out. Nah, the waves are good. I'm not going to school. Now, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, in, in, tongue thank you, um, but it was fun. I was 22, had no idea what I was doing. I was newly married, and half the youth group thought she was like a high school student, like, woo, who's the new chick? That's my wife, dude, hands off. And so, um, but the church was growing, and our youth group was growing, and... and um, like dozens of kids came, came to faith in Christ. I remember one time we did this concert in an odd term just like this with chairs similar to this with a punk band named Undercover, which no one's ever heard of, but that, and that music like, mm, I'm not sure if that's Jesus because that sounds bad. But, and they were like jumping up and down on the chairs and the chairman of board came in and he was not happy. And, uh, but he didn't see the fact like 25 kids trusted Christ later on in that concert and it was just a fun time. But I realized over, over the, that decade, and then as I look back, how many kids were still walking with Jesus? They liked the fanfare. They liked the friends. But when it came down to it, in the end, many of those kids just fell away from their faith. And it breaks my heart because as a pastor, one of the things that, that both Scott and I just pray for you about is that as your faith grows, that it would be rooted and anchored into God's Word and the culture that wants to drag you away from the one who loves you, who died for you, who sacrificed for you, that He's worth living for. And yet... 40, almost 40 years later, as I look at some of the lives of these kids, and they're not with Jesus. It's because, Lord, what happened? And what happened is this text. 
Satan's a three-trick pony, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I don't want that to happen to you, whether you're 15 or you're 55. Amen? You got someone in your life that says they love Jesus, but you're worried about them and you're wondering, well, maybe they're stuck in this vortex that's pulling them farther and farther away from God. And today, we want to pray passionately for them. But more importantly than for them, we want to pray for us so that we will be that salt and light that the Word talks about. Amen? That Jesus lives through us, not in a legalistic, I got to do this kind of way, but that Jesus who died for us and loves us unconditionally kind of way so that the world sees a qualitative difference, right? So let's get to the so what and we're done. I gave you some questions. It's called table talk. I want you to take some time this week to actually do the homework. Raise your hand. No, I'm not going to make you do that. But would you, would you just take the time and actually read these and think about it more than throwing it in your Bible and going home and eating it like one of five choices there on Canaan Road, which we all see each other, all 50 of us every Sunday? Actually do that. Number two, what does loving like Jesus look like for our, our church, and how do we love like Jesus loves in a culture that is so different from what God's called us to? How does that work? I want you to read a book. It's called Love Does. Our entire elder board and our staff is reading. It's by Bob Goff, G-O-F-F, all right? Get on Amazon, get on your Kindle, read that book. It's so inspiring of what it's like when people are yielded to Christ, how loving people and taking risks for Him make a difference. And then thirdly, as Chad comes, I want you to think about this. Have I been co-opted by my culture? Have I been subtly sucked into this lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, one of those three that's kind of slowed my growth, stunted my growth, or maybe stopped my growth. I want you to think about that. And then as we close in prayer, I'd like you to do business with God, okay? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Your head's bowed and your eyes closed. Oftentimes what we pray for isn't what God wants for us, right? I ran across this inscription. It was apparently written by an unknown Confederate soldier at the end of the Civil War in a burnt-down house in South Carolina. And this was what was inscribed. Maybe you can relate to this. I asked God for strength that I might achieve, but I was made weak that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked God for riches that I might be happy, but instead I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men, but I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life, but I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything that I'd hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. 
I am among all men most richly blessed. Friends, we're blessed when Jesus permeates every fiber of your being. And today, if that isn't the case for you and you're saying, I know, I've kind of just been sucked backwards, kind of like a frog in a boiling pot of water. I didn't even realize it was happening. Like the erosion against the cliffs in Malibu, beating the stone and wearing it away, I find myself distant from God. And you're a Christ follower. You're trying to be at least. And today you're saying, I got to do something different. Just between you and God and me, if that's where you're at today, I want you to look up at me and say, I, I got business with God to do this week. I'm not going to call you. I'm not going to bug you. I'm not going to guilt trip you. I just want to know that I'm praying for you. Look me in the eye if that's you today. Okay. 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 Anybody else? Okay. 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 See, you're not alone. We do this together in community. We need each other to do this walk with Christ. It's three steps forward, two steps back sometimes. So, Lord, would you take our people here at ABF and their friends and their culture and their, their neighborhoods and their workplaces, and would you redeem them? Would you remind us today that being right isn't enough? We have to redeem the culture, not ridicule the culture. And, Lord, may I fall in love with you more each day. I want to be passionate about loving you and serving you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, that is our challenge today, isn't it? That as we go about our walk this week in the workplace, in your home, in the community, on a sports team, with your kids and their friends and their parents, that Jesus Christ would be proclaimed through your life. They'd see a difference. They'd ask why, and you'd say, hey, I'm a work in progress, and Jesus is changing me from the inside out. Amen? Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.